Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, you're listening to the How To Academy podcast, the twice-weekly show brought to you from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the producer of this series and one of the curators of our live programme. Today, comic books and their TV and movie spin-offs are the biggest entertainment franchises in the world, and our first guest in this episode is at least partly to blame. He changed the world of comics forever in the 1980s and 90s, showing that this once juvenile medium could handle erudite, psychologically complex and thematically rich storytelling. Whether deconstructing superheroes and the Cold War in Watchmen, or the Jack the Ripper murders in From Hell, creating a universe that includes every fictional character ever invented in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or reinventing the English novel in his Blakean epic Jerusalem, His place in the literary landscape is unrivaled by his contemporaries, whether in or out of the funny pages. Neil Gaiman calls him the greatest living Englishman, and I'm not going to disagree. He is, of course, Alan Moore. Our second guest is the creative polymath Brian Catling, who, after a hugely acclaimed career as a sculptor and art professor at Oxford, turned his hand first to poetry and then to the novel with The Vore Trilogy an utterly surreal journey through the evils of Edwardian colonialism and much else besides. Brian is back with a new novel, Hollow, the story of a band of Peckinpahish thugs on a bizarre religious quest centred around the Tower of Babel. We brought Alan and Brian together to talk about their specialist subject, imagination. They were in conversation with comic, author and broadcaster Robin Ince. Brian, I was going to start with you, if I can, because I find it really, you have moved through and continue to move through lots of different ways of expressing your imagination. And I know that one of the things you said was that you find that you've always lived more in your imagination than in what we might consider the real world. And I just wondered what you see as that line between the world of your imagination and the world of reality. Um, imagination is more exciting than those greater possibilities. That's the first answer. And it doesn't go away. I mean, it's there 24 hours a day. It's there at night. It's there working and churning. And, and by amplifying it, which I did consciously, you become a bit of a slave to it, but it's also totally inspiring. So, so I don't have a very sensible answer about the real world. I, I, I can deal with it. You know, it's feasible but I'd rather not be there. I'd rather be inventing new ones and being with other people who invent new ones. Now, I'm interested because I, I think, you know, there's a lot of debate about this, Alan, I'll, I'll ask you about this first, which is that that sense that something that leads to people who spend a lot of their time working with their imagination and creating new worlds is sometimes the idea that perhaps in their early life, the world itself has already shown itself to be unsatisfactory. That there is that that for the artist, it is looking at the world and saying, "This is not good enough. I I need to recreate this world, and I need to have alternative to this world." And then eventually wanting to share those alternative visions as well. Well, I suppose that uh, yeah, that that's a fair enough assessment of it. Although when I heard you ask Brian where the line was drawn. 
I honestly hadn't realised that there was a line <laughs> before that. I tend to think that, all right, imagination is a kind of virtual reality, but then what isn't? I mean, like, we are composing the reality around us using our imagination. It's a very vaporous line, if it's there at all. It's free to everybody. It's this landscape that we exist in, as Brian said, all the time, uh, even when we're asleep. And um, I think that there must be perhaps an aversion to it, some fear of it in a lot of people, that if their imagination went too far, they could find themselves in, I don't know, Brian's jungle or something like that. Uh, that um, you've, you've got a sense that imagination for a lot of people, I think it can be threatening. So, yes, it is the font of all miracles, but it's the font of all horrors as well. It's like, it's like the ocean. Yes, it is the source of life, but it's also the source of sharks and jellyfish. See, that is because th th that line that you're talking about, because that fascinates me, this sense that are people scared of the imagination because there are some people that believe they are able to access a singular real world. And I know it's something that, that Alan, I've talked about with you before, and I wonder with you, Brian, that, that realisation that we are not taking in the world we are also projecting ourselves onto the world and then seeing that light and those echoes bounce back into us. So the idea, and I think it's very dangerous sometimes when we see the way that social media and news media works, where it says there is a single reality yeah. and, and this is my truth. And that's where it seems to me dangerous ideology and bigotry lie as well in saying there is one universal truth. And once you start tying with your imagination, you really work hard enough do you feel you do get that sense of realising it is a, a bottomless well? Yeah, but the, um, um, that all came with the enlightenment that there was one reality, that there was one situation that, that we all had to sign up with. And politically, it's, it, it's a very safe place to be. You can control people with that. I think there are so many versions, there are so many possibilities. And the more and more we know about these things, the more we know that, that there are slippages we don't exist in one. We agree to exist in one. And, and for the most part, people are encouraged through education, through, through other forms, to believe in it's made of nuts and bolts. It's made of concrete, a reality and cause and effect. But well, those things have not been around that long, you know. They, they, it's a fairly new idea, but it grew into a doctrine. And it's a doctrine that is very, very strong. And people teach it without even knowing they're saying it. So, I mean, so, so, so for, to keep, one of the things I do to keep my sanity, or rather I did before I retired, was to teach people in art schools. And it was about listening to them about their imagination and asking them to encourage, encourage them to develop their imagination. Not mine. It wasn't about my ego or that. It was about bringing it out in people and saying, you're allowed. Go that bit farther. You're allowed. Go a bit farther. What happens around the corner? And it's always there. It's always the imagination is in all people at all time. It's just, it's suppressed and it is dangerous because it's always been attached to madmen. Yes. It seems, I know that you've taught Brian about the, you know, that, that sense of people being given permission seems so important in, in, across the, you know, in so many different issues. And, and you say that, we're, you know, in, in the secondary school you went to, you were taught by quite idiosyncratic people. Yeah. People really did say, Go with that and, and, and encourage that. I was very lucky. But, but I mean, but it only happened quite uh, near the end of my time there. I was in the gut stream and I was heading through the woodwork class either to become a career criminal or a policeman. But some of these, some of these inspired people found, found they actually found me in the library reading uh, Rabelais and it changed everything. But they knew what it was. I suspect that ain't the same now. Alan, I'll, I'll throw both those things over to you. First of all, that, that sense of, you know, an, an objective truth that some people, I mean, it's one of the reasons Bertrand Russell gave up mathematics, I think, was ultimately he found out he couldn't dig down and get a single objective truth, so he went into philosophy instead. And, and that, that moment of freeing yourself up from saying, here is my universal truth. 
Well, I I know some people who have seen some very, very strange things, but I've never known anybody who's seen an objective reality. (laughs) Um, It's... I suspect that that's because there probably isn't one. I mean, I was reading a very interesting thing about evolutionary psychology the other day, which was suggesting that we have always selected for survival rather than accuracy in our perceptions, because if we could see, say, the full multi-dimensional aspect of that enormous jaguar over there that might delay us in running away from it for a few seconds which would be all it would take for us not to pass on our particular genes so these people were suggesting that reality it's more like if you've got if you're writing a novel and you've got in the center of your laptop screen, you've got, say, a little green box that is the way into your novel. Now, that little green box isn't your novel, but it's the fastest way to access it. That's all you need, a little green box. And what they were suggesting is that that is how we compose reality, that we have these little icons that are not the reality of what we are looking at, but sort of uh, that, yeah, they're best for our survival. So we're not distracted all the time by the extraordinary complexity of everything. I mean, um, yeah, I think that what Brian was saying about how some people think that imagination is a route into madness, which, of course, it is or it can be, I think that a lot of fantastic fiction, especially in the early days, is perhaps eased off a bit now, but people would always assume that the creation of something macabre or fantastical must indicate a macabre mind, that it must be an indication of mental illness. Of course, people like Edgar Allan Poe didn't help (laughs) <laughs> but it's sort of, but you know, I think a lot of people perhaps still make that association that that kind of territory, the territory of the fantastic, is stuff that um, cannot be used unless you have some kind of aberration yourself. I think this is why a lot of uh, some early authors claimed, oh, I get my inspiration from dreams because. People could think, yeah, okay, I suppose you can have some pretty strange dreams. You know, it was, um, I think, a cover story. It's interesting that John Waters, who, you know, of course, made Pink Flamingos and Hairspray and Female Trouble, he used to go and uh, do lectures in, in prisons, you know, having made these films that were considered, you know, filthy and disgusting and so countercultural. And the thing he would always tell all the people in the prisons was the mistake you've made is to commit your acts in real life. He said, I'm the most urbane, delightful and witty man because all of the horrors and the most disgusting things, he's put them on celluloid. You know, sometimes it does feel like they're out of his head and and he's he's made them into a form of art, which is, there we go, that's my dark head and now here I am in my nice suit. I remember Alistair Crowley, uh, someone saying that if he'd actually been a better magician and had had a better imagination, then he wouldn't have had to actually do all of those horrible things in real life. He could have just imagined them yeah. strenuously enough and got exactly the same effect. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's, uh, it's a good way of sort of dodging one's evil deeds, you know, at least theoretically. But there's also the others, like you and Blake, who, I mean, one kind of forgets in that discussion about, you know, people being a little bit off their key, to, they're grafters. I mean, why would anyone take on writing a Jerusalem? I mean, or, it's a mammoth, massive work of enormous complexity that never goes away. It, it, it bores a hole in you and you keep talking, you end, you end up talking to members of the family. This is the fiction. But fiction at that point is no longer fiction. 
If we believe fiction is always separate, it's a mistake. Fiction is a way to understand history. Fiction is a way to go back and to meet people. It's also a way to meet people in the future. And in Jerusalem, you've got the old bloody lot at once. I mean, it's an, an, I'd say we're, we're, we're with Blake as well, because people are always trying to find out, you know, there's all people trying to find out what Blake was, who was he, what did he, look at the work. You'll never know who he was. That's not possible, but look at the work. My God, there's so much of it. And it's so intense. And it's meshed like this. And it meshes and changes all the time. That's where you find the answers in the work, because that's what their life is. So, so the idea, one of the things I find really difficult is that people believe if you're in, in gave the imagination, it could be a little bit like lightweight, airy-fairy. No way. Some people, Alan particularly, put their life into this and all the hours of the day and night. And that's called grafting. And it's, and it's a, an intense occupation. See, that, that immediately reminds me of that. I think it's probably Picasso line, isn't it? You know, I've been struck by inspiration, but only when I've been working. I'm interested, I'll, I'll ask you about this, Alan, as well. Because you mentioned William Blake, you know, there's that fascinating thing of him having his fourfold vision. You know, that he's, he's, and this is so much part of the imagination, this sense that there is something on the first level of vision that uh, um, Blake would see, which is roughly what we might all see if we were looking out on Peckham Wright, just uh, some approximate version. And then he gets to those second, third and fourth fold visions, which were true for him. And, and they were truths. But they were not ones that he would then demand that other people, you know, there's a lovely story, I think, in John Higgs's his book about him, where he talks about William Blake when he argued with a, a thistle, because the thistle was a thistle, but it was also an old man. And he is accepting this idea that it's not an old man to everyone else. He wouldn't then go, everyone, look, the thistle's an old man. Yeah, yeah. But it has, this imagination has a reality yeah. for yeah. him, and then that becomes its artistic expression. Yeah. I think that this is something that uh, Blake actually contributed to the idea of magic. I think that Blake, as a pre-romantic, was probably one of the first people to suggest that the world of the imagination is a real world. Um, it's not real in the same physical terms that the world about us is real. It's real in its own terms. And um, I think that Blake's ferocity with which he approached that, I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful poem uh, that he writes, which is all about his kind of demigods and angels struggling against each other, which you slowly realise is all about William Blake passing a difficult bowel movement. Um, and he ends it up, with this wonderful couplet, uh, which is kind of a peon to the imagination. It was, if Blake did this when he got up from shite, what might he do if he sat down to write? Which <laughs> is, <laughs> that, but I mean, like, yeah, the, the ter I mean, I would thank you very much for the comments on Jerusalem, Brian, but I would, I'd have to include what you would, particularly in the ball. I mean, that was something, again, where you, you're you working at it all the time. Although I suspect that as with Jerusalem, I mean, William Burroughs' concept of the word point, that sort of you write a word, uh, you put an idea down on paper, that will suggest the next word and the next idea and so on. And so stories can grow like a word vine. And I mean, which kind of raises the suggestion that writers are just a kind of instrument by which stories tell themselves. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and it, these places, they are real worlds, just as Blake suggested. It's sort of um, when you are in them, you are having a complete virtual experience of that world that somebody created out of their mind. Yeah. That someone just put together. But it will be a real world. It will haunt you if, if it's a, a powerfully enough described and written one. 
it will become part of your it's part of your life experience it is a reality it's also there's a technical thing as well and you and you know this of course there's a technical thing that when that's happening you're pushing your own descriptive terms further than they've been before because they're being pulled by this there's a kind of magnetism there's a kind of energy in it that's pulling you forward so so you're writing things that you didn't know were there or or the language or the form or the construct well construct was actually there before and it suddenly appears before you and you think that's not me i don't Where's speak that come from it's come from somewhere else, but it's, it's, it's shaping, it's forming, it's forming language, it's forming notions of what's before and after. Yeah, I think that people, a lot of people seem to have the impression that writers are people who have ideas and then write them down. But there are a lot like that, aren't there? I suppose there are, but I, 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 well, I, I tend to find that I have the ideas while I'm writing. Yeah, absolutely. The the ideas seem to grow out of the writing process. Yeah, precisely. In a different way to the way that they grow out of the talking process. So yeah. yeah. It's there's something to do with the, the rhythm of the words, the shape of the words, the colour of them. Yeah. But it's it's very much like painting in some respects. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, you know. Well, I have the nightmare reality, and it is a nighttime reality, of adding that when I'm trying to make a sculpture or trying to make a painting or trying to make something else, even dinner for people. <laughs> they wake up in the night and they're all fused. They're all jumping about. They're all boiling. And I know yeah. what I'm trying to think about this person and that person. No, they're trying to think about me. Sorry, I'm not trying to think about the characters. They're thinking about me. At the same time, I'm trying to think about what recipe would that do and how would steel work if it was treated with a different temperature? And these yeah. things go on and on and on. And I, don't, and I can't separate them. Yeah, why separate them? This is all of our crowd of associates, isn't it? Some of them just happen to have physical bodies. I mean, there was a a brilliant book by the American writer Gilbert Sorrentino. He did a book called Mulligan Stew, yeah, which yeah. Is, is kind of wonderful. It's a really clever avant-garde novel about somebody writing a really awful avant-garde novel. <laughs> and and there's, there's bits in it where between the chapters, you've got the actual characters from the book complaining about the book. Yeah. And um, there's one of them saying, you know, he swiped me from a footnote in Ulysses. Uh, that's where he got my name from. And all right, it was only a footnote, but it was Ulysses. And now I'm in this rubbish. And <laughs> the characters are saying, what if we all just walked out? You know, what would happen then? After the next chapter, we all just walk out. He's got nobody to write about. And... Um, yeah, it, it is very much like that. It's, you're in a dialogue with these creatures. They will tell you what they want to do or don't want to do, more specifically. Absolutely. You know, you'll think, would they say that? As if there was a them there. Absolutely. You know, it's just, this is the world. This is probably why um, I believe that writing as a profession probably has... a a large amount of um, mental difficulties that are associated with it because you're having to work in this borderland and you're having to treat it all as real. So, uh, yeah, that, that could be why some writers do have uh, a difficult time of it, you know? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House 
and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. So it's interesting when you bring that up as well about the different forms of imagination, because when people talk about imagination, it sometimes seems that people will eventually get to just one form. But as you said, with some authors, they cannot believe that other writers start with uncertainty or that, you know, a crime author. There are some crime authors I know who halfway through the book go, I've just realised who's done the murder. Yeah, yeah. And other authors, I remember talking to David Keenan, who wrote This Is Memorial Device. And he said, you know, there was a point where there was a character he hated so much. He was going, I can't believe this guy is so <laughs> horrible. And he was like, but, but I, I, it's me. I'm, I'm creating this person. And yet I'm also <laughs> fighting against creating. I'm so angry that this person exists. And yet that person exists only because of him. And I think, you know, those battles. So I know when you started writing the, the Vorbran, you started off, with, you only, you, you had like a, a short story read and you had, had three pages of an event, didn't you? And I the- have an opening scene. That was it. An opening scene. I didn't know where it went from there. And I tried to write it. I, and, and I tried to do it for many years. So I got to page three each time and threw it away. <laughs> then circumstances changed. When people asked me about this, how, what, especially in America, what was the cathartic experience? I said, I think it's called a laptop. <laughs> Suddenly this machine, you know, kind of dyslexic and uh, where well, I wasn't called that when I was a kid, it was just a, a cone, a Dion. But it was, um, it was, it suddenly allowed it to go and it just came out. And, and so there's, and there was no, there was no way of gauging it. People said to me, in such a complicated work, you must have had a structure, a plan, a map. No, 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 not at all. I just, I don't, as I go forwards, I forget what's behind. And that's a problem sometimes. We have to go back and kind of try to edit up. But it's always moving forward because they're, they're calling me. They're calling, the story's calling me. And I don't, sometimes I'm writing like, you know, like, you didn't. You didn't. It's a, kind of, it's a sort of ghost prophecy. Um, but I don't think that's, um, I think if you give yourself up to imagination, and even more, if you dedicate yourself to imagination and say, you know what, I'm going there. That's what happens. That's the gift. Yeah, that actually commitment to the imagination, that where, I mean, like in the Vaub, where it's sort of, or in hollow, or in, in, in those, there's not, thousands of books like that, but where the author has thought, how far can I take this? Because I think that society, literature, tends to impose boundaries upon what can be imagined, uh, which I think people internalise and then sort of uh, become incapable of... I mean, this is particularly in fantasy. This happens a lot, but surely that's the one genre where every work should be a completely individual world created by one individual. But you get these tropes. You get sort of dragons and dwarves and sort of orcs and sort of all of these things which, yeah, they are... They are things that don't exist in the real world, but I would prefer things like, say, in the Vore or in Hollow that don't even exist in the world of the imagination until the author has created them. You know, when you think what could be done with fantasy, that fantasy is a potentially a, a more infinite universe than the one that we're actually living in. And yet we explore so little of it. Absolutely. You know, it's sort of, I mean, like the, if you look at science fiction, I mean, the first science fiction stories could imagine as far as the moon. I mean, going back to Lucian and all the rest of them, people could sort of think, okay, we can get to the moon. But you can see that then there were some on the 
the, the, near, the planets in the solar system. But you have to... And then once we got warp drive, which was, I think, sometime in the 50s or something, and we could get to other solar systems, in our imagination. But it's like it took us a while to think, well, you can't imagine beyond the moon. You can't imagine beyond Mars. And, yeah, because people sort of build these perimeters. Yeah. Whereas the imagination is limitless. See, I wonder for, from both of you really about the, is some of this also about the Western imagination? Because I think sometimes when I travel around and I go and see art from, from, from what we consider non-European cultures, and sometimes when I look at films that come out, of, you know, where, where suddenly you, you'll, you'll see that in some countries there's movies which are a musical one moment, then there's suddenly a melodrama, then they're a thriller, then they're a comedy. Whereas it seems that we, you know, when I think of all the kind of the superhero movies are basically the same story told over and over again, and there is a comfort in the chaos of the world for people to say, oh, good. So some, some audiences, they want to see an imagination that gives them structure yeah. in the chaotic world. And others, I know the older I've got, the more I want every film to be like a David Lynch film. I want every movie to be uncertain. I want people rowing about what it means. I don't want to know if the goodies are definitely goodies and the baddies are definitely baddies. So I wonder if that's also part of it, that even the imagination we're talking about sometimes is, is, is a, quite a parochial uh, imagination, Brian. Absolutely. I have to say one extraordinary two words, Lucille Hadji-Hahilievich. And uh, there are two questions. If you look at Japan and you look at ghosts in Japan and you look at spirits in Japan and you look at fantasy in Japan, there's something else there. It has a long tradition and it's variable. And they're not, they don't sit comfortably in one territory or the other. And, and for a long time, they were never really illustrated. The so domestic ghost was only illustrated in the sort of 19th century. Brilliantly. And, and so in other cultures, it is there. In Islam, there are, there are genies and spirits which have a very different relationship to the way we think about those entities in, in the Western world. And that's not even touching on Africa, which starts a whole other brilliant territory. So we should look there, really. Um, but so I'm not asking you, uh, yeah, the American trope is the most comforting one. That's why it's being made so much. It's the most comforting one. We know where we are. In the first three minutes of the film, we're told the beginning and the end. We're told who we believe in and what they are. And life is comfortable that way. It's not true. It, those things were invented, you know, kind of around wars but they now become something else. They become, they're dangerous things. They're dangerous things because they always become, the answer's always the same, and it's the wrong answer. It's the well, wrong question. It's, it's also, I think that they're genuinely dangerous because they create a certain mindset. These simplistic stories where essentially, when you're talking about, say, the superhero narratives, what you've got is a unbelievable, fantastic threat to humanity that will be averted by an equally unbelievable and fantastic saviour, which, yeah, that's fine. That's all well and good as a children's story. But if that sort of settles into people's consciousness as yeah, this is the way that narratives work. Yeah. Then you're going to get the fantastic, unbelievable threat is going to be the underground Democrat pedophile demons <laughs> that were suggested by QAnon and the equally unbelievable superhero saviour that is working behind the scenes to rescue us all will be the Donald, who's even got a superhero name. And it's this is there's an infantilization of the narrative, which I think has crept into the way that we conduct the world, yeah, to a certain extent. And so, yes, this is very dangerous, like we were saying earlier. That, um, yeah, imagination is, is the source of all magic, all wonder, um, uh, of everything, but it is also really dangerous it's a sort of um 
Because if the imagination is not trained, that's when it becomes potentially a quicksand that can just, people can spend their entire lives lost in a world of their own imagination and never actually accomplish anything in reality. The imagination has to be used actively. I mean, I think Peter Blakebad, uh, on his wonderful album, King Strut, uh, there was a line on that saying, um, imagination, like a muscle, will increase with exercise. King Strut developed his by having dreams and telling lies. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Which is, you have to develop this stuff. You can't just have an imagination because you'll end up lost in the funhouse. But the reality of that going wrong was Trump. Yes. Because that's all of those things, the superhero, all of those things in the most ridiculous possible territory in reality. Yes. With yeah. a button on the table. And yeah. you, my God, it can't be true. It's all, this is like a uh, watchman was a fairy tale compared to what's actually happened in reality because those beliefs are taken up as being real. Yeah, I, I think that sort of um, certainly uh, I have to take a certain amount of the blame for all of this. No, you <laughs> but, um, now, well, I think that fantasy is not just an inconsequential thing. It's what we build reality upon. Yeah, yeah, indeed. The things that, I mean, most of our, our actual personalities, I don't know about everybody else, and this might be a massive reveal that is not, shared territory but so when I was about 13 I suddenly realized that my actual natural personality if you can call such a thing um that had got me all the way through my childhood wasn't going to work when it came to puberty that um that wasn't going to work with you know attracting sexual partners or anything like that, that I had to, I thought I'd better bolt together a personality out of things that I find attractive in other people, often in imaginary people. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us do that. And we fabricate our own personalities and then forget that we did that. So we end up, you know, just sort of, we are imaginary beings in a world that we have imagined. But you know? I think you have a much greater responsibility than that. I think what you do is not that. I think what you do is to actually give the potential of imagination to other people. You don't just say, this is mine. You know, if you read Jerusalem, you have to be in it. You have to be in the family. You can't be outside. You have to be inside it and on the streets. And I think... One of the things that's important is is that we're we're actually still saying you can do it. There's something in there. We're speaking the same language. We are not separate from you. We are not some sort of strange being over here. We're speaking the same thing. And you can do it as well if you just believe that that part of your mind is probably greater than the bit that goes to the bank or the bit that is scared by those things and it's a result of another part of your mind which has never been spoken about or very rarely and and also that that has got i mean when there's lots of reasons why uh some people should really be writers um okay maybe there are some people who it wouldn't work for but the thing is about writing especially with writing fiction yeah that whatever kind of horrible nightmare your life has collapsed into at any given point if you've got another world that you are involved in creating and living in for a certain number of hours in the day. And, and of course, even when you're not writing about it, you're going to be thinking about it. Yeah. Then uh, it's not really escapism. 
No, no. Uh, it, it's not sort of, oh, I'm going to get away from all of my problems into this. But it's, it's a necessary respite, you know, sometimes. And it's, it's great therapy. It's a great meditation. I can't think of a better one than the meditation that's involved in creating a world of fiction. It's sort of, uh, it's very beneficial to the author and hopefully to the audience as well. But I think yeah. it's also available to non-writers. It's available to people who do lots of other things. If they trust in their instinct in it, if yes. you're a dancer or a painter or something else, there's a way in which it's not about language. It's not only authors who invent no. a fantasy world. It's not only authors who invent an alternative reality. You can do it through live performance. You can do it through music. You can do it through so many things. But you've got to go there. You've got to say, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to put, I'm going to put my hand into this, and I'm going to grab it and do it. It's not some, you know, mamby-pamby kind of wishy-washy thing. You've got to work for it. You've got to really do it. I mean, it's like, say, and you've got to insist upon the reality of what you're doing. Yeah. You've got to commit yourself to it. It's like Rousseau. Yeah. Uh, Duanier Rousseau, who'd never yeah. been to Africa. So he just imagined Africa with such force yeah. that um, it's, it, it's, it's a dream Africa. It's a, it's a perfect Africa. It's sort of, the fact that it doesn't look like Africa necessarily doesn't matter. But he did it so forcefully that he expresses some kind of immortal essence of the place, Absolutely. never having been there. Yeah. I you think that's true in so many things. You know, it's also true in, in more lightweight versions. I mean, it's true sometimes in comedy. It's true sometimes in... in, in in television fiction that sometimes there's a space where there's a little bit a little bit larger area where people can go and they invent another territory they invent another because i've not been there before you know a league of gentlemen those kind of things i've not been there before what's happening and, yeah. and uh, but those are always seen those ignored they're seen as just steps in entertainment profiles but i think that there are similar things I mean, I, I think the position we've been given is a little, little bit too close to profits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, uh, that can happen. It's all, and <clears throat> I mean, in my own case, uh, yeah, that has happened rather a lot till I, I mean, we did um, in 2016 with the Arts Lab. Yeah. Uh, we, we were going to have our first Arts Lab meeting. Uh, our first Arts Lab performance, and it was, was it the 24th of June? Um, it, it was a Friday. Um, so we came up with this great idea about how we were going to, the situation was going to be that all of culture had suddenly died overnight. There'd been some apocalypse, Armageddon, as we <laughs> call it. And that sort of, in the cultural vacuum that sort of is left behind, this fascist baboon rises to prominence. Now, we arrived to perform this on the day after the Brexit vote. <laughs> um, so, sort of, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can see, you start to wonder whether sometimes um, is it me causing this or am I just sort of... Um, predicting it or whatever it's uh i I've, I've thought about why don't i just write nicer stories <laughs> and then perhaps we'd live in a much nicer world yeah. you know I, I do have to make one claim for obscurity i have to make a claim for obscurity because lots of the things i do with my colleagues and other people i work with are doing things for very small audiences and very small publishing houses and very small bits of poetry, bits of performance, will be seen by very few people. And I think that's important as well. That's an injection under the skin. Yes, I think that's true. And sometimes it, it's just, you know, because we're doing the big stuff, the other stuff kind of forgotten. It's so important that, that 
those things are occurring. But they are occurring more and more now. Yeah. And, and COVID, the Brexit has actually encouraged it. I think so. I think so. You know. Yeah, we've got an enormous number of questions, so I'm going to go to. We, we won't go through them all, so I apologise to people out there because there is basically when it turns out you're having a discussion about the nature of human imagination, where it comes from, where it goes, and what can it do. It turns out that 47 minutes isn't enough to cover that all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, looking back, we haven't thought this ahead. Um, this is uh, I'll ask this to you, Brian, because this is something you, you you kind of dealt with a little bit. Stacey's wondering. Often people talk about a drought of ideas where imagination fails, but uh, what when there's too much and your imagination runs wild with too many wonderful things what do you do to capture it and try not to miss a thing uh, you don't capture it you go for the best one you sleep on it and see which one uh, rises to the surface in the quag of sleep and uh, uh, go for that because that's probably the one that needs to speak to you the most I would say uh, that there's no reason Yes, choose the one that is the best and the most appealing, but don't necessarily discard the others. That might be another book or an idea at some point in the future that can be something else. It's, um, yeah, have a commonplace book, write these things down, choose the best one, and uh, but the others might come in very useful at some point. Indeed. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I just want to add to that. I was just interested because sometimes you can come up with an idea and it just doesn't work at all. Yeah. And then 12 years later, you find it in a notebook and it seems to be only a change of a word or two or what barely even seems to be a change of approach and something which seemed utterly dead in 2010 or whatever. You go, oh, now my mind is able to turn this into something. I mean, do, do, is that something else as well about in terms of ideas that can sometimes get lost or seem pointless? Burn the notebook. Yeah. Well, and also those, I'd have to get a plug in here for Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt's oblique strategies cards. They won't be useful all of the time, but this is a bunch of cards that have got often cryptic instructions on them. And if you're in a rut in your thinking with a creative work, you look at one of these cards and you try to obey the instructions so that you'll at least be in a different rut. And sometimes you can have ideas that they don't quite work. They sound like a good idea, but they don't quite work. And um, I remember when I was working on the Big Numbers comic that was aborted after two issues, but when I was working upon that, uh, I'd got this scene which should have worked brilliantly and it wouldn't work. And I just picked up one of the Oblique Strategies cards and it said, is there something missing? And I thought, well, of course there's not. This is all the elements of the set. And then I thought, well, what if there was? So I just thought up a completely random element that made the scene work perfectly. Brilliant. Brilliant. So sometimes there might be something missing, you know. Can I come into that? Yes. Um, when, when teaching, sometimes I had a student who would say, oh, but I, I'm, I can't do this, I can't, I can't make that, I, it's not me, I can't do it. I say, okay, we'll invent somebody else to make it. I say, <laughs> well, what do you mean? So, well, go, you've got a day, you've got half an hour, you've got the rest of the afternoon, let somebody else make that. You go and make it with your hands and let somebody else make it with their head. And they come back with something going, It is there something about that in terms of, and it's something definitely dealt with in in, uh, in Jerusalem. The satisfaction of prose writing is you can write someone who can write that symphony, and you can write someone who can create that incredible model, and you can write, and therefore then you are still placing in people's mind they're imagining it for themselves, but you have created that person who you may not feel you can be. Well, weirdly, I find that when you're creating characters. 
creating characters who are more intelligent than you are is actually surprisingly easy and it stretches you to have to think from a perspective that is beyond your own. In fact, it's more difficult, I find, to write somebody who isn't as intelligent as you are because you'll probably end up being patronising or something like that. It's, it's a more difficult thing to actually try and restrict your consciousness for a character that isn't as smart as you. Don't right. believe it. Your demons are wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. It's <laughs> so fucking human. You know, that's what's so great. You you met them in the pub. That's what I've never met a demon I've met in the pub. <laughs> I'm sorry. They are. Oh, thank you. Thank I you. don't need to contradict, but you know, they're wonderful. Um, Eddie uh, wondered uh, what is the difference between creative thinking, which he does every day, and imagination? Uh, it might just be semantics. I'm not sure. Um, Alan? It sounds semantic to me. Creative thinking is done using the imagination. I don't know whether there is a difference or a boundary line between those two things. I wouldn't care to draw it. Brian, have you got any thoughts on that? Make something. Creative thinking, imagination is not the interesting point. Make something from it and see what happens. Uh, we've also another question, which is, uh, which of Alan's work is your, your favourite, Brian? We've talked about Jerusalem quite a lot this evening. Oh, it is Jerusalem. Yeah. But I have to explain, um, because of my severe chronic dyslexia i have a unique way of uh reading it so i have the I, I have the audio version and the book and i go from one to the other which takes 10 times as long but it gets me there Cool. anyone watching this who, who's not read Jerusalem yet I would advise you to get the three volume set rather than the one volume set because I think when people see I remember we talked about something when people see the size of Jerusalem and the smallness of print blind. Well, blind. It, it, it is overwhelming but when you go it's okay it's three books Bible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we had people complaining that it was damaging their wrists and their eyes <laughs> and we had to explain that it was we were kind of trying to balance it between eye damage and wrist damage, you know, but uh, we can't always get it right. That's a very dangerous statement. <laughs> between eye damage and wrist damage, but we won't do it. Uh, um, let's see. The, uh, does your imagination work more visually or is it more abstract? Brian? Visually, entirely. And do you, when it's when that's happening... How much are you thinking about the ability to translate what is in your head? Because I always think that's the interesting thing, is that that bit of how much you think you can pass on of what you can very specifically yeah. see in your kind of skull cinema, and then what's going to go into the skull cinema of the person reading your, your, your yeah, work. Skull cinema, I love that. Uh, when it occurs, I'm not aware of any of that. It's just... And then in the morning, I kind of have to make some sense so, I mean, when you get down to the shop floor, that's when you have to make it sensible. Up to that point, it's all fighting. It's all enjoying itself. Alan, what about you? I suppose that, for me, I think that it's initially a verbal idea. I'll think of an arrangement of words, and that will almost simultaneously create the image to go with them. This is something to do with having um, spent most of my career working for the comics medium, where everything has to have a clearly defined image to go with it. Otherwise, there'll be nothing on the page. So I would be thinking of each little cluster of dialogue. Okay, what is the best visual to accompany this? Which has been very helpful with actually my prose writing because if you're having to explain to an artist what to draw you've got to be very clear and precise so yeah that has helped but I think that the initial impetus is probably still verbal uh, when I was working upon the prelude to 
the new series of novels that I'm doing with Bloomsbury. I was just writing notes, and then I suddenly wrote a, a practice sentence, which wasn't the beginning of the book, but I knew it was a beginning of the book, much like uh, with uh, Brian's opening scene in the book, that I thought, oh, this is good. This is a good sentence, and I could sort of build this up into something. It doesn't go right at the beginning because I thought that that would have made it seem like a, a different book to the book that I intended, but it's it's there early on. But the initial thing was a collection of words and ideas, and then the visuals filled themselves in after that. But it's almost simultaneous. This is interesting. Now, is it- I, I, sorry, yes, Brian. No, 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 because this is like... Um... In a kind of way, it's and it explains something I didn't understand. It's a, almost a reverse of the of the way we work. Yeah, but, you start with the image. Yeah, but also uh, as I as I as um, I'm convinced, the more I write fiction, actual uh, memory is raised by it. That's possible. That's possible. Memory is is a whole different class of fiction, isn't it? But, but, of, but you have an encyclopedic memory, which you can call on. I can't do that. I've erased it as I've gone down a track. I suppose that, I mean, my memory, it's nowhere near as good as it was. I, I have got quite a sticky memory for things that uh, I'm interested. It's just a, a huge warehouse full yeah. of pointless facts until they become not pointless anymore. Uh, no, they're not pointless, they're important, and I've heard you talking about many subjects on this way, and you just pull them out of the air, pull them out of the air. I don't have that. That's really interesting. I don't have that. I can't. They've all been erased. As, as I go down a the track, they've been kind of burnt behind me. Well, uh, actually, a lot of my memories of my actual life yeah. yeah, I remember lots of things that I've read and lots of things that I've seen and stuff yeah, yeah. like that. Yeah. My memories from my actual life, I I see photographs yeah. uh, from me as a young man and I have no memory of being that person. It's okay. sort of, this is, it's a parallel life. I have... So that we share. Yeah, so we, we've still got, yeah, <laughs> this, this huge load of gaps and blanks in our personal narrative it's uh which i suppose is good because then you can fill them in i mean which was basically what a lot of um the whole thing with um jerusalem was uh, you know it was sort of uh, you know just uh, yeah it was filling in things about uh, the strange accident that had happened to my brother yeah you know and um but I thought, okay, this is something inexplicable. Nobody knows what happened during that 10 minutes when they were trying to get him to the hospital. So that gives me an infinite space yeah, 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 to yeah. fill with whatever I want, you know. And in deep intensity. Yes. It's it's sort of, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because... Fantasy is probably always in some way about the real world. Mm. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. If you got something that was completely disconnected. Yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't work at all. Yeah. Frustratingly, we've run out of time. And uh, there's a, there's a, I don't think I've ever done an event with so many questions, so many questions about magic and uh, the nature of spelling and psychedelics and many other things. So I will <laughs> also say, go on to YouTube, uh, which uh, there's a fantastic interview with with Brian. Is it called The immateri- Im- Im- Immateriality of Matter? I think there's a, 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 a couple uh, of long but, interviews. But, uh, but there's also the, um, the BBC Arena one. We'll, we'll look up the, the see what you, you know. No, 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 no. They're both good, but but you know they have different. They have different. Uh, and uh, also with Alan, obviously, there's a lot of stuff up there. And I, I will say that uh, um, uh, Voice of the Fire, I think, came out. Was it last year or the year before? Twenty fifth anniversary edition. Yeah. Your, your first. Last year. 
prose novel. So, so that is out now. Uh, Brian's uh, novel, Hollow, and obviously the Vaughan trilogy um, as well. Thank you very much for, for joining us again. I do apologise. There's so many questions. But now I would spend the rest of the evening going on an adventure with these two people because there are so many <laughs> things out there. And so much, many of your questions will be answered. Uh, in fact, it's not really an evening. It's the rest of your week. Ring up sick to work now and uh, deal with the more important make your imagination and uh, and these humans imagination as well thanks very much for watching bye-bye thank you this episode of the podcast starred brian catling and alan moore the producer was luke naylor perro and the series is made by me vas christodoulou and dana outcult if you loved this episode please do rate us and review us if you hated it don't worry about that You can also check out other interviews with extremely creative people in our archive. You'll find Isabella Allende, William Gibson, Maggie O'Farrell, and many more. Until next time, thanks for listening.